from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. Clark Corbin is back in the States. He is back from his adventure in the Himalayas at Everest Base Camp, and we'll be back in front of the microphone next week for the podcast. This week, you have me anchoring, and you will have Melissa Davlin from Idaho Reports from Idaho Public Television. She will be joining us later in the podcast. We're going to talk about the intersection of healthcare issues and education issues. So stay tuned for that interview. We'll get to it in a few minutes. But first, this week's headlines, and there are quite a few of them. Let's start our tour in Middleton. Outgoing Superintendent Josh Middleton has submitted a scathing resignation letter, which was made public earlier this week. In the letter, Middleton blames nonsense and false rumors and Facebook garbage for much of the dysfunction that has plagued the Canyon County District over the past few months. Middleton does not name his political adversaries in the letter, but it's pretty clear where he stands on the recall election involving two trustees, Tim Winkle and Alicia McConkie. He thanks Winkle for hiring him in the first place and calls McConkie an absolute exemplary trustee. You can read the letter and get a better sense of what's going on in Middleton at idohoednews.org. And now let's head up the road a few miles to Emmett. Longtime Superintendent Wayne Rush has submitted his resignation effective June 30th. That came after a brief public hearing on Wednesday night in which trustees heard some mixed testimony about Rush and his record. Some speakers blamed Rush for everything from declining test scores in the district to a building uh, facilities need backlog. Others defended Rush's performance, and the local teachers union pointed out that uh, 87% of members gave Rush a vote of confidence in February. Rush steps down effective June 30th. He receives a separation agreement that could be worth up to $123,000. The timing of the announcement is a bit bit interesting as well. On two occasions, the chair of the school board said that uh, trustees had accepted Rush's resignation on June 5th, not June 12th, Wednesday of this week. And also that separation agreement involving Rush and the chairman of the school board, that was signed also on June 5th. We do know the trustees held an executive session on June 5th to discuss personal matters, and that is allowed under state law. But under state law, government bodies cannot take final action in an executive session. Get all the details at idohoednews.org. Now let's turn to Blaine County. Blaine County does have a superintendent, but some people want her gone. More than 1,000 people have signed an online petition urging trustees to fire Gwen Carroll Holmes. Holmes has been on the job since 2014. Holmes says she plans to stay. Critics turned in their petitions at Tuesday night's school board meeting, and that wasn't even the big news from the meeting. Trustees voted to censure Rob Clayton and strip him of his position as chairman of the school board. The reasons, according to the board, were multiple violations of the board's code of ethics, dating from January through May. Last week, Clayton publicly criticized district leadership during a town hall meeting. We have details about this developing story at idohoednews.org. Let's make our way to Eastern Idaho, where former Shelley High School principal Eric Lords may lose his administrative license after admitting to using school funds to purchase more than $3,700 worth of personal items. The big ticket item on that list is a family ski pass costing more than $2,000. Our Devin Bodkin has the full story at idohoednews.org. Let's stay in eastern Idaho and turn our attention to the West Jefferson School District in Tarotin. 
West Jefferson High School has a new baseball coach, Mike Wing. Wing has an elaborate plan to build a new high school baseball complex and has pledged that he can raise $3 million for the project. But Wing does come to West Jefferson with an extensive criminal background. He served more than seven years in federal prison as the result of a wire fraud investigation and was forced to pay more than $9 million in restitution. District administrators say they knew of Wing's criminal background before hiring him. Again, Devin Bodkin has the full story at idahoednews.org. And it feels almost tame by comparison, but Governor Brad Little's Education Task Force got down to work on Wednesday with a subcommittee meeting. This is the subcommittee that is assigned to look at the school budget and budget stability. Amidst all the overviews about how the state spends education dollars, the subcommittee got a mixed message from Derek Santos, a state economist. He said that there's a possibility of a recession in the next three years. After a long period of economic growth, the modeling suggests that there's about a 30% chance of a recession sometime in the next three years. And Santos predicted that if, an, if a recession does occur, it's likely to kick in perhaps in the early part of 2020 and last for nine months and be less severe than the Great Recession that we saw about a decade ago that led to unprecedented cuts in K-12 funding. You can see our coverage of Wednesday's meeting at idahoednews.org. And stay tuned because we'll have continuing coverage from Little's Education Task Force. A subcommittee looking at the teacher pipeline is scheduled to meet on Tuesday. And now to our interview. We here at Idaho Education News spend a lot of time scrutinizing education statistics, and we spend a lot of time looking at the demographic realities and the demographic gaps that affect student performance. But this week, we're going to focus on healthcare. We're going to focus on some of the demographic realities in healthcare and how those, in turn, might affect student performance. I sat down with Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television, because I wanted to talk to her about these issues. She has spent the past year on a fellowship taking a deep dive into healthcare issues. Here's our interview. Melissa, thanks for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. You've spent the past year on a fellowship looking at healthcare issues along with journalists from around the country. Tell us a little bit about the fellowship and what your big takeaways were. This fellowship was through the Association of Healthcare Journalists, uh, which is based out of Missouri. And they um, hosted 11 of us from the Mountain West and took us on trainings uh, all across the country. So we went to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. We toured uh, homeless healthcare centers in Albuquerque. Um, we went to Denver this past week and toured National Jewish Medical, uh, which specializes in pulmonary conditions and, and treatments. And my big takeaway from all of this, this fellowship looked at everything from the science behind health research, to policy, to hospital finances, to just everything across the board. And of course, with what I do at Idaho Reports, I'm very focused on public policy and the intersection with healthcare there, and there are so many intersections there. But my biggest takeaway is that healthcare affects everything. Mm -hmm. There are cross tabs with every part of our lives, and, and that might seem obvious, but it, it's not that hard to find 
stories that affect, say, education and healthcare both. Um, for example, this past week in when we were in Denver, the the National Jewish Medical Center actually runs a K through eight school for children with chronic pulmonary disease, which is unique. There, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the country. And um, they do it specifically because children with asthma and other pulmonary diseases have lower academic performance. Um, it's because pretty striking. they're battling with the, the chronic illness. Absolutely. Um, Colorado has done research on this. Um, they found that 51% of students had missed school due to asthma in the past 12 months in six school districts um, in rural areas. And so there are a number of reasons why students in these areas might be experiencing um, asthma symptoms, you know, ag, um, mm-hmm. dust storms, that sort of thing. Um, 15% of students had missed more than 10 days of school. And there's a direct correlation between missing that much school and lower academic right. performance. It's, we know that absenteeism is a problem in school, whatever the cause of it. But absolutely. if health is the underlying cause in a lot of cases. Absolutely. And so, you know, th- this is just one program in which they attempt to address it. And so me as a journalist in Idaho, I can't exactly do a story on this school in Colorado and have it be directly applicable to what we're facing in this state. But we have a number of agricultural communities and school districts that are located in rural communities that have relatively high incidences of pulmonary disease, you know, asthma symptoms among children. And so one thing that we could do as journalists is, is take a look at that public health data and match it up with academic performance and absenteeism in these school districts. That's just one example of where healthcare and education intersect. And it's really interesting. I mean, it seems very intuitive that healthcare affects everything much as we hear and talk about a lot how education affects everything. But you and I both know that when we get into the state house, when we get into the day-to-day of covering the legislature, it feels more siloed than that. And maybe because of the committee structure partly, but maybe also because of the expertise level. You, we have legislators who are experts in education policy. We have legislators who are experts in healthcare policy. But in the end, they're citizen legislators who only have so much time to be expert in so many things. Absolutely. And these discussions are, are so siloed when they shouldn't be. You know, you can't talk about criminal justice without talking about education. We heard that time and time again from Governor Otter when he was mentioning, you know, how those third grade reading indicators were um, also sometimes an indicator of juvenile and then adult delinquency. Mm-hmm. And um, flash forward ahead to Governor Little making this his top priority or one of his top priorities. Absolutely. And so we're, we're seeing this at some levels of state government, but when you talk to the agencies for whatever topic, so often this information and these discussions are siloed. And so it's not just the lawmakers. When I was doing reporting on opioids, for example, Mm -hmm. earlier this year, there were so many instances in which all of this information was completely separate. The data didn't talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there are a number of government, there are a number of ways in which somebody who is abusing opioids and has an addiction might interface with the government, whether it's the health and welfare system for treatment, 
whether it's the criminal justice system and law enforcement, um, if they are breaking the law, um, the child welfare system, um, the education system, so many different ways. But those databases don't talk to each other mm -hmm. at all. So as a result, we don't have complete information um, as, as far as how wide-reaching this problem is. And that's just one example. And it's impossible to think about the full reach of the opioid issue without thinking about the impact on, on kids. If, mm -hmm. if their parents are wrestling with an opioid addiction, uh, how that affects the, the kids and how it affects their ability to perform in school when they've got you know, a, a parent who is fighting a powerful addiction. Right. And that's, just, and that's just one example of how healthcare in a family can affect student academic performance. I think more than a few people were surprised last year when a couple education professional groups came out in favor of passing Proposition 2, Medicaid mm -hmm. expansion. Right. Because on the, on the surface, why would a teacher's union care whether or not the state passes Medicaid expansion? But in their statements, and when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because if there are these long-term stresses on a family it's gonna affect academic performance. It's gonna affect their students. We see that with poverty. We see that with hunger. We see that with chronic illness. There are so many ways that not just the student's health and well-being affects their academic performance, but that of their parents and their siblings. It feels like in the education world, we have a little bit more of an understanding perhaps of the connection between poverty and academic performance. I mean, that's something that we write about a lot. We did a series about it a couple of weeks ago, but it's something we constantly come back to. When you look at test scores, you have to look at, at poverty, you have to look at right. the demographics. But this is another demographic factor that maybe we don't pay as much attention to in education reporting. Now, what's the, the family health picture and how that affects uh, student performance? And, and the, the common denominator here is poverty. There are a number mm -hmm. of social indicators of health care, you know, secure housing, secure right. food sources, um, being at, uh, um, just being generally healthy. Um, and you can't address one without addressing these other things because it's, it's like, a, you know, a, a house of cards where you take one out and everything else right. crumbles. So that, that foundation um, of economic security really matters to these families in both healthcare and education. You heard some numbers during the course of this fellowship regarding suicide and, and, and teen suicide and youth suicide and where Idaho ranks. They were just startling. Can you kind of walk us through some of those? Some shocking numbers. Um, and, and it depends on which source you look at and how they correlate the data. But regardless of how you slice it, Idaho teenagers are among the highest, if not the highest, when it comes to suicide rates by firearm mm -hmm. specifically. And so, and even if you take out those specifics, we're still among the top for youth suicide. So there are a number of challenges when it comes to covering this in a way that there's something called the suicide contagion that we've found as media professionals talking to health professionals, if you cover suicide irresponsibly, 
it leads to other people um, idolize, I like kind of thinking about suicide in an mm -hmm. idealized way and more people attempt or um, go through with killing themselves. And so this is an ongoing conversation in journalism, but it's also critical that we talk about it because if there are these reasons, access to firearms is an obvious one and it's taboo to talk about in these red Western states right. like Montana and Wyoming and Idaho that have access to firearms. But that's a huge common factor in these suicides is easy access to firearms. Um, opioids are another. Um, um, access, access to medication and opioids also contributes to these high suicide rates. But again, poverty and economic despair are another reason why people, I mean, we, we call them deaths of despair, overdoses, mm -hmm. suicide, that sort of thing. And it goes and poverty. Oh, poverty is a common factor in that. And it goes to some larger challenges that the state is, I think, trying to get uh, get on top of uh, you know, mental health in, in as a factor in school safety and school security, and in, in terms of uh, you know trying to do more uh, for students who are facing any kind of mental health issues, and and suicide as well has been an issue that the state has really trying to get caught up on, I think, in terms of trying to come up with policies to address the suicide rate, to, to try to get help uh, for folks who may be uh, contemplating suicide. Absolutely. So not just for our young people in Idaho, but for people across the board. Uh, the high suicide rates in the Mountain West states, so Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, um, those are driven primarily by older white men. Mm -hmm. they're, um, they're statistically the most likely to um, kill themselves, especially with firearms. Um, but across the board in most demographics, we have very high suicide rates. Um, and women are, women used to statistically um, use different means, less violent means, um, of attempting suicide, a lot of times medication, but more and more we're seeing uh, firearms among women being used as a means. Um, and so there are other states that are addressing this by passing out gun locks. Um, there will be state agencies that come to gun shows and have gun safety classes and hand out free gun locks. We're seeing that in North Dakota and Utah. Um, I haven't seen that discussion here in Idaho, but that might be something that as other states are doing this, we might see here as well. One area where healthcare policy and education policy clearly intersect, and we've seen that at the state house, is immunizations and vaccinations. I know that was a recurring topic on the fellowship. What did you learn there that might inform the way we cover the uh, immunization vaccination debate in Idaho as an education issue and a healthcare issue. It, it's funny because a lot of the people who spoke to us were healthcare professionals, not fellow journalists. And for them, the issue is black and white. Vaccinations save lives, and this debate is not two sided. It is false misinformation that is being spread against decades and decades and decades of research and 
good public policy supporting the use of vaccinations. It's kind of healthcare is equivalent to the global warming debate, where the Absolutely. science community feels unified on the the merits of immunizations and vaccinations as a as a healthcare as a preventative measure. Absolutely, you know, it's it's not that it's not that this is a debate. This is the totality of medical science versus misinformation. Um, vaccinations save lives, period, the end. We still have problems as journalists, though, um, and the discussion based on how to communicate this information was focused on, you know, there are some people who spread this misinformation um, who will never change their mind and they will never vaccinate their kids. They're not the people we need to convince. The people we need to convince are people who... You know, I mean, you and I are, are voracious consumers of news, and we're very, very aware of what's going on day in and day out. And we know what's going on with this one-sided debate versus misinformation. But the average citizen isn't as tuned in as we are. And so they might be more likely to be like, okay, well, you know, maybe I do need to look into a delayed vaccination schedule, or maybe I do need to, you know, question whether the MMR vaccination is right for my infant. Those are the people that we need to address and and not waste our time finding people like Jenny McCarthy or whoever who are just totally convinced that, you know, and falsely that vaccinations cause autism. And it feels like this is a topic that we're going to have to cover differently in Idaho simply because the dynamics are changing. We've had two cases reported in Latah County just in the past couple of weeks. And as a journalist who covers education, I feel like, you know, it's almost a fait accompli. It's inevitable that at some point, maybe in the next school year, we're going to be covering the effects of a mini outbreak or more, maybe more than a mini outbreak somewhere in Idaho. I, and I think you and I have had this conversation about at, at some point it's not if but when you know with some of these stories and simply because we had surrounding states with outbreaks it just feels you know statistically it just feels like it's it's inevitable absolutely I, I agree with you and so I think it's it's smart for newsrooms and journalists to have a plan on how we cover it when it will happen because it will likely happen. Um, you know, this, this case in Moscow isn't like a lot of other outbreaks. It was an infant who was too young to be vaccinated mm -hmm. and then an adult who... Yeah, some exposure from overseas. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's the kind of thing where herd immunity is so critical, you know, coming back again to the science that's been proven by decades and decades of research and good public health policy. Um, that's something where that outbreak could be contained as long as vaccination rates are robust enough in that community to protect infants. Um, so, you know, at this point though, I, I was I was just in Washington for work and it was absolutely on my mind because now we're receiving the information that if you were, if you received your vaccinations before, what was it, um, 1989, that you probably need to get an update. And I was thinking, oh, when was the last time I got an MMR yeah, booster? I'm, I think I'm I got one when I was, I, I think I got one when I went overseas in 2011, but I need to double check it. You know, that, it's something that, that we really need to talk about when we're talking about herd immunity. What else jumped out at you from this fellowship or what other facts or 
uh, findings really jumped out at you in terms of um, in terms of the debate in Idaho and in terms of issues in Idaho? You know, one thing that I keep coming back to is racial disparities in healthcare on a national level. The conversation about these racial disparities has focused a lot on African American people, and for good reason. You know, African American women are shockingly more likely um, to die in childbirth or as the result of pregnancy or from postpartum issues. African American infants are more likely to die. Here in Idaho, we have a different racial demographic. So I started looking at racial demographic disparities in healthcare. And there are some here too, which is no surprise, but you know, this, this national narrative doesn't directly apply because our, um, we just don't have a, a very large population of African-American people. We do have a number of Latinos and we do have a number of American Indians. Mm -hmm. right. And we really see those racial disparities here in dental care, in maternal mortality, in infant mortality, in homicide. All of these different um, causes of death, if you get a racial breakdown, there are a number of differences. Um, white people are more likely to die from overdose and um, suicide. Um, American Indians are more likely to have higher rates of just about any disease you can think of. And most of those diseases are preventable. So we need to have serious conversations about rural healthcare in this state. And those conversations have been going on. Um, but I would like to see more of a component on tribal healthcare and, and the cultural differences in that healthcare as we move forward. And it just strikes me talking about it that, you know, we write about racial disparities. We talk, we write about achievement gaps in terms of graduation rates, in terms of test scores. There are similar gaps and, and you know, ethnic gaps in terms of healthcare, in terms of uh, health. These things aren't in a vacuum. I mean, what's happening in terms of health and what's happening in terms of educational performance, those things aren't separate. Absolutely. You know, and, and once again, there are underlying themes that affect healthcare and um, economic security and education. I, I hear so often at the State House and in conversations that, you know, race doesn't matter and I don't see color, but there, you, you can't look at these numbers and honestly say that there's nothing going on here when it comes to access and how that affects achievement. There, there is something happening and I think we need to address it and be honest about what sort of systemic issues are happening here when it that affect these racial disparities. Melissa, thank you for taking the time for walking us through in 20 minutes what you learned over the course of a year. And I feel like we really hit the tip of the iceberg, but but there's there's so much there and it's there's and it's so fascinating and it's important. And knowing you, you will do a lot more with this uh, knowledge in the months and, and years to come. I've got way more than 20 minutes worth of information. So I trust am, me, I'm, this is not the last you'll be hearing about healthcare from Idaho Reports. I, I'm very confident of that. And I would be remiss if I didn't close by congratulating you. Uh, we have an Emmy Award winner on uh, the Extra Credit Podcast. That doesn't happen very often, but well-deserved. Well, thank you so much. It was it was truly an honor. It was a, 
it, it was one of the greatest honors of my life. So and for a documentary you. that you can still see online uh, on you know, Chinese immigrants. Right. It's called um, Idaho Experience Forgotten Neighbors. It's about the history of Chinese immigration in Idaho, and it is still av available at idahoptv.org and pbs.org. Congratulations, and thank you for coming in. Thank you so much, and have fun in Europe. Thank you. Again, that was Melissa Davlin from Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. That's going to wrap up this week's edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. I want to thank you for listening. We're going to have a busy week ahead, a lot going on to look towards. Monday is the deadline for Governor Little to take applications for two vacancies on the State Board of Education. So look for that list at idahoednews.org. And speaking of Governor Little, his Education Task Force continues work. The subcommittee looking at the teacher pipeline issue is scheduled to meet on Tuesday, and we'll have full coverage of that, as well as anything else that comes along in education policy and education politics. Follow us at idahoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter for breaking news, and follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. Speaking of conversation, the podcast will be back next week, but I won't be. I'm going to be on vacation for the next two weeks. It's uh, my turn for an overseas adventure, and we'll have all the details on that when I return in July. Uh, Clark Corbin will be back hosting. He'll have uh, guests, and he'll have all of the latest of what's happening in education. So tune in next week. And take care, and I will be back in July. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.